Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is uh, Professor Richard Farger. He's a professor of biogerontology at the University of Brighton, and he was a past chair of uh, the British Society for Research on Aging and the International Association for Biomedical Gerontology. So, uh, Professor, how are you doing? Not so bad, Rich. Not so bad. Yourself? Good. Yeah, thanks for making the time. That's okay. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, so tell me, what what interests you in aging? What, uh, you know, what got you into it besides being a... Uh, you know, someone that's aging just like the rest of us. <laughs> that's an interesting one. I mean, I think what interests me most about aging as a field is the potential to improve the health of older people everywhere. So, you know, if it's probably very well known that if you looked across most of the um, rich nations, all of the top ten causes of death and morbidity are age-associated. Um, it's probably less well-known that if you look across the um, statistics for the poorest countries, still almost half of the leading causes of death and morbidity there are age-related. Getting old is really not good for your health most of the time. And, you know, I think we probably need to do something about those chronic health problems so that we can spend the money that we have to spend now in ways that will be more beneficial to the population as a whole. It's often forgotten old people don't want to be sick. So that's why yeah. I do what I do. Do you think it, that um, what's going to happen is we'll have a, the same lifespan but a longer health span? Or do you think we're actually going to increase the number of years that we'll live on average? I think, I think it's a difficult one to... Um, one to, to pump for. If you wanted my opinion right now, which as they say in all, you know, good advertising is subject to change without, um, without undue advance warning. I think that what we would probably see is we would see a very large increase in late life health. And that would probably be accompanied by some increase in maximum lifespan. I, I'm not sure with the available technologies that it would be in any way particularly dramatic. So I'm I'm thinking of a few years rather than, you know, an extra 30, 40 or 50 years. Um, but the benefits of improved health would be extremely large indeed. Do you think that um, if someone was able to be repaired and to fix the things that go wrong with them as they get old, do you think they could? Someone could last to be 150 or 200, or do you think that just so many things would go wrong, you'd end up either replacing the whole person, or they would just there's there's mechanisms. I mean, do you think there are mechanisms that are just keeping us around this age range, no matter what we do? I think the argument's kind of tautological in the sense that it starts with the um, it starts with the um, statement. If a person could be repaired, how long would they live? Mm. Um, 
but then goes on to assume that there's some kind of things that you might not be able to repair. So at that point, the person can either be repaired or not repaired. My own feeling is that it's slightly more complicated. It's what can be repaired with the technology available at any given time, mm. if, if one wants to talk in those terms. I would be very, very surprised if we saw much significant lengthening of lifespan beyond the maximum that we've got at the moment. Because don't forget, you know, the maximum lifespan is at the order of a 120. And average life expectancy is in the mid-80s at the moment. So to even, you know, to get everybody up to the maximum normal human lifespan now is a huge ask. Think mm. about it. That's true. That's true. You know, um, and again, it's uh, one. I'm always cautious with uh, with conversations like this because you can end up with this situation where you know, yes, you know, if you can do anything you can possibly imagine, then you can imagine anything, and that's actually not, I think, how realistic tech forecasting should work. It's what can we envisage doing now. And what might we be able to envisage doing within a normal kind of development cycle? You know, there is a, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who said, when a famous scientist says that something um, can be done, they're almost certainly right. And I'm not a particularly famous scientist, but I'm famous enough to be on the show. So, you know, <laughs> listeners probably feel, um, feel comfortable when I say things can be done. Right. Um, those who are kind of more optimistic can go with the other part of Clark's um, statement, which is when a famous scientist says something can't be done, they're almost always wrong. So um, okay. those people who want 200-year lifespans can take comfort from that part. So is the focus of your research um, finding out why we age, or is it uh, creating cures for some of the various problems we have as we age? Well, I think we know why we are. People tend to mix up why and how. I think we have a very good idea of why organisms age in evolutionary terms. Okay, That work isn't complete, but you know, there's a very clear, I think, and defensible rationale for why aging's evolved. My, my interests have less been in why is aging around at all than how does it work particularly in humans. And obviously, understanding how aging works is a prerequisite to improving later life health. Yeah, so what are the mechanisms? I know it's not just one thing. So what are the key drivers of aging? What are the mechanisms that we know about? Um, I think some of the most, I think there's probably three mechanisms that are really interesting. And, you, you know, you can get other people on, they'll give you, give you different answers. To my mind, one of the most important mechanisms, it's one I've worked on most of my work, in fact, all of my scientific career, is the senescence of normal cells in culture. I think most people in the field now would be comfortable with the idea that the accumulation of senescent cells through a variety of different mechanisms with the passage of time is what compromises your health and causes both the things we've historically called aging and the things we historically called age-related disease. And these cells are formed in a variety of ways. The bottom line with them is after a 
number of divisions or a particularly dangerous oncogenic stimulus, they will no longer divide and they adopt a highly toxic phenotype. And that phenotype is intended to get them cleared by the immune system. Now, your immune system fails as you get older, and in some cases the cells can't be cleared for other reasons. And as a result of this, you start to fill up with these nasty toxic cells. And their effects are a big chunk of what we think of as aging. So that's, one of the, that's the first mechanism. Okay. The second one, I think, would be the area of what you might call nutrient sensing and recycling. And so obviously, um, if you think about um, some of the longer-lived mutants that have been isolated over the years, many of these organisms are highly efficient at breaking down and recycling damaged proteins. This also seems to be a mechanism that functions in, in calorie restriction. And the reason for this, I think, is fairly straightforward. If you have trouble with the biochemistry, the best way to think about it if you have a child is to think what those children do with Lego. You know, um, you can go and buy new Lego kits and your kids will happily make them into aircraft or starfighters or whatever, mm. and they'll keep aching them as long as you buy the kits. Well, if you decide eventually you've got tired of the house being cluttered up with Lego, then every time the kids want to make something new, they've got to disassemble something old, and that takes time. Mm. And something like this happens with organisms where effectively what you're dealing with is not Lego, but building blocks of proteins. It's always, if you've got the nutrients, more energetically efficient to do de novo protein synthesis typically than it is to break down damaged proteins. And so effectively, if you're allowed an unlimited supply of nutrients in simple terms, you will tend to clog up with these damaged proteins. And so the long-lived mutants, in essence, think because of what's wrong with them that they don't have any nutrients so they're able to recycle and in calorie restriction you really don't have any nutrients so you've got to recycle so as long you live is a function of um, how efficiently you recycle huh. and, and the last mechanism actually which was a bit of a surprise to us is something that's very very new it's been worked on for years by my collaborator Lorna Harries at Exeter and this is the observation that restriction of the splicing repertoire of cells plays a major role in the decline in your resistance to physiological stresses as you get older. And so the way to think about splicing repertoire, which is a slightly difficult thing, is obviously genes are encoded into DNA and eventually the information in those genes is turned into protein. There's an intermediate step in organisms where you make messenger RNA. And in higher organisms, that messenger RNA is spliced and cut around to allow you to produce a lot of different templates of that basic building block. Um, as you get older, for reasons that we're starting to understand, um, that repertoire of forms becomes more and more and more restricted. So, to return to the Lego kit analogy again, because it's one I like, you start off with a Lego kit that you can turn into anything when you're young, and by the time you're, you know, 60 or 70 years old, you've got one of those Airfix model kits where you can only make a Spitfire. 
And that's bad news if you think of an organism being subjected to a physiological stressor like cold, for example, because it needs the ability to make the right proteins at the right time. And that seems to be compromised possibly fatally. So those are my you know, three hot tips for, for how aging works. Well, of the three, if you were to rank them, which one is the... Is there a dominant force that's causing aging? Oh, you have a talent for asking the big question that doesn't have an effective answer. I could make a big speech and say, you know, the most efficient, the most, the most important one is cell senescence. Why? Because it's the one I work on. Um, I don't. I think that that's a question so broad that it almost doesn't admit of an answer. Because if I said cell senescence or RNA splicing or nutrient signaling as the most important mechanism. I'd effectively be saying it's the most important mechanism in all species and all humans, regardless of condition, absolutely all of the time. That, that's a big speech. So I suspect we will find contexts in which one of these, each one of these mechanisms is the dominant one. And I would be astonished if we didn't find contexts out in the biosphere where they were all mine. So, um, what's happening in people's bodies? Are even young children having these same things happen, or is it does it not happen at all, and then all of a sudden it starts happening at a certain age, for instance? No, it happens very gradually over time. So, I mean, an obvious example, but I'll stick with senescent cells, because it needs a lot to do. If when you're a kid, you probably, because of the way these things work, don't form very many senescent cells. And as soon as you form one... It's clobbered by your immune system. So, you know, the levels of senescent cells in your body are going to be pretty low. As you get towards middle age, your immune system is failing to cope with senescent cell clearance, and you're forming more of them at the same time. So the numbers of senescent cells have got to grow up very markedly. So, you know, I think one model that I think everybody would agree is wrong because the idea that you know you're absolutely fine until you're 30 and then all of a sudden things start to go downhill but it does seem like that you know i've heard from many people like you know i don't know that i've spoken to oh and when you get to be this age all of a sudden things change and and so it sounds like there's tipping points i guess when you get quote unquote enough senescent cells or enough a, a tipping point is not a blowout that's the uh you know, because if we imagine, you know, if you imagine, you know, if you imagine a tipping point as, you know, enough water into the bucket to make the bucket, to, um, to make the water start to overflow and make a mess of your carpet, that tipping point is very different from, say, a tyre blowing out on a car, where one minute it's holding together and the next minute you've got problems. Hmm. It's where the effects can be, seem to be very dramatic, you know, in terms of eating you know, you uh, you're you're 18 years old. You can eat, eat anything. It seems like, and you're you're thin. And then when you look at you know people on average when they're let's say 40 years old, it's now very different. They can't even begin to eat the same way they used to, and yet uh, they I have weight like problems. I just like to say your 18 year old self had a damn sight better time than me. I've always been. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't put too much. As I say, I wouldn't put too much um, emphasis on that kind of sort of, you know, subjective impression. There's probably something there, but I think trying to, 
to go into this in terms of, oh, does this indicate it's suddenly gone? I don't think that's really where we can go. Yeah, and also I get the feeling that since people live to an average age, you know, not everyone does, but on average they do, um, all these processes have certain rates, and if you could affect the rates, you know, slow them down, um, that's how you could either have better health span or, uh, or a longer, you could live a longer time. Well, yeah, that's that's certainly what we think. I mean, I we're, we're, um, I think that's not. I don't think that's a bad model. Where I think it's probably important to um, to have a sense of how one might start to use any drugs that come out of research is the way we use drugs today. You know, a lot of people when you talk about um, you know affecting late life health or improving late life health have this kind of picture where, you know, somebody comes downstairs for breakfast and, you know, they say, good morning, dear, did you remember to take your immortality pill? And I'm reasonably sure that isn't what's going to happen. I think that what will happen is that we will start to get effective health span lengthening treatments out, hopefully within my working lifetime, and we will use these the way we use medicines today. So, for example, I'm, you know, I have age-related hypertension. Um, I wasn't medicated for hypertension for my entire life. It was left alone until it was picked up as a problem, and now I control my, I control my blood pressure with ACE inhibitors. That's pretty much how I see things as a model. Do you, um, you know, with these tipping points that I, I spoke about, uh, do you see different regimes that people fall into? You know, they're one way, and then when enough senescent cells uh, accumulate in certain areas that they fall into, like, a new regime where their body is acting in a new way? Well, I think, you, you know, I think you can, you can end up with some remarkably unpleasant feedback loops. I mean, for me, the obvious one would be exercise. It's, it's clear that exercise provides a whole raft of benefits, including, for example, improvement in the immune system, if you do plenty of it. Now, imagine that for some reason you suffer some kind of nasty incipient pathology like arthritis or fibromyalgia. Yeah? Um, all of a sudden, however much you might want to, you can't exercise as much as you would like to or were able to. That means that your muscle tissue starts to decline in effectiveness. Um, muscle, like a lot of things, is organized on the principle that if you're not using it very often, you probably don't need it, so you start to disassemble that muscle mass. That starts to affect the way in which you, um, you handle um, blood sugar and also starts to affect the efficiency of your immune system. So you can end, you also, I have no doubt, feel utterly miserable and your mood also affects your immune system so you can end up in a very nasty downward spiral at that point i think the uh, the challenge is to break it so let's let's go back a little bit to um senescent cells uh what what are the causes of senescence and what do senescent cells look like and act like um it depends on the tissue the Basic cause, you know, one fundamental cause of senescence uh, of, of cellulose, or let's put it this way, why does senescence exist in the first place? Senescence exists as an anti-cancer mechanism, and that's the easiest way to approach it. So in the normal course of your life, you lose cells. 
Their loss is balanced by cell division. Cell division is actively monitored as an anti-cancer mechanism. Classically, in many human cell types, with the progressive loss of DNA from the ends of chromosomes, the telomeres. And so, if cells have been around the cell cycle sufficiently, their telomeres will have worn away, or at least one of them will. You will then see a short telomere looking a lot like a double-stranded break in the chromosome, and that will transduce a signal that stops the cell dividing and triggers the senescence process. And that's where all the bad stuff comes from. But you can also get that effect by picking up a mutation that strongly signals for cell growth. They're the kind of precancerous um, mutations that you get when you go through the cell cycle. And there are a range of other routes by which dividing cells can do those sorts of things. And obviously, in different people, you're going, I would imagine, you're going to see a different balance of that dependent on how much cell turnover there's been, what the mutagenic load is, that kind of thing. Very, a very interesting development, and there's some great work being done by this guy called Joe Passos at Newcastle, who I don't think gets half the credit he deserves for this, is he's been working quite hard on these kind of toxic phenotypes in cells that, you know, don't divide through life, such as mature nerve cells, because a telomere is just a piece of DNA. It happens to be a piece of DNA that's quite susceptible to some types of damage. If you end up with a stable piece of telomeric damage, it activates the same kind of senescence program that you see in division-competent cells. These neurons start to throw out pro-inflammatory markers and that kind of thing. That's a very new area of research people, I think, are haven't paid it the attention they should do. But um, that would also show you how you can, for example, in the central nervous system, get um, both cells that are obligately non-dividing like neurons and cells that do turn over like astrocytes contributing to a more inflamed environment that messes around with learning memory. Hmm. Okay. Um, is there any mechanism to... <clears throat> remove senescent cells from the body or to cause them to be tagged in such a way that the immune system street sweepers will pick them up and get rid of them? That's one of the hottest, t- that's one of the hottest tickets right now. Obviously, quite a bit of this has come out of uh, well, the story I've been telling you, has come out of the development of transgenic mouse models where the animal has effectively been built from a single cell such that you can remove any senescent cells that form by putting drugs in the animal's drinking water. That's, so it's a test bed system that says, you know, what would happen to an ordinary mammal if I removed senescent cells either at the end of its life or all the way through its life? And in both cases, that's good news. What we actually need are small molecules, ideally, I think, that will push senescent cells to die. So in that sense, it's kind of like a cancer problem. We need to kill a subset of cells and tissue. Or alternatively, and this is also something that I'm very interested in, we need compounds that will stop the toxic phenotype. So we can leave the cell there. It's just not pumping out all the bad stuff. 
And some of the, um, we've done some work on this. We've also um, recently done some work on reversing the RNA splicing phenotype. That, that was very that was very gratifying. We've used a panel of molecules that are made in the lab that are derived ultimately from, uh, from compounds you get in the diet. And if you do that, what you can see is you can reverse a lot of the splicing. You can reverse senescence in some cases, but I think that's a bit of a happy phenomenon. And you can also block, depending on the molecule you choose, some of the pro-inflammatory cytokines that, that cause problems. So I think there's an awful lot of ways you could go into this. But the real goals, I think, would be, you know, if you were determined to, all right, how can I fix these problems and improve later life health of people? It's what can we do about getting rid of senescent cells? What can we do about resetting RNA splicing patterns to something that looked like, you know, you at the age of 20? And what can we do to enhance recycling of damaged materials? And there are people working in all of those areas. You know, it's, it's very, very gratifying to see quite a number of startups, particularly in the States, starting to look at different areas of this. I'm probably, you know, unduly pessimistic to be in that space. I look at the numbers and I say, you know, we're only about 100, you know, we only, we only have about one one hundredth of the companies we actually need. But for everybody who's out there, um, you know, working on them, I wish them every success because whoever gets to one of these drugs first is, you know, going to done humanity a great favor and won't have hurt their bank balance either. Do you think solving, uh, it's necessary to solve all three of the main mechanisms that cause aging in order for it to work, or can you just, you know, improve no, one? I'm, I'm, I, think the, I think the senescent cell data tells us that you only need to fix one to get significant improvements in health. I think the, um, I think the mutant data tells us the same thing for, for nutrient sensing. Any one of them would be nice. Nobody has done anything, I think, okay, um, what can we stack these together? How do they add up? That, that is not an area that's been heavily worked on. Yeah, if you can't affect one dramatically, maybe you, could, maybe you could affect all three a little bit, and maybe that would get you the yeah, same effect. Uh, I, I, think you could, I think you could draw up almost any... Um, set of um, measures for that you like, and I think you could find some people who'd agree with you and some people who wouldn't. I think it's that open right now. Okay. Well, very good. I know you've got a, a tight timeline, so I don't want to hold you. Um, <clears throat> what's What's the best way for listeners to find out more about your specific research? You know, where can they go to um, see papers? If listeners are interested, um, I'm a, I happen to be in the UK. I'm speaking at New Scientist Live publicly in September. Um, I'm giving a lecture, and I'm also um, I'm also in a breakout room where I will be answering questions. If there's any specific questions, my email address is on the internet. I'm always happy to hear from um, anybody who wants to get in touch with me. And if you're interested in senescence specifically, if you go onto the Faculty of One Thousand. There is an article that I've written there that's really intended for a specialist scientific audience. But one of the things that I have found is that people who are interested in this area tend to be pretty smart, pretty well read. So I wouldn't put, I wouldn't discourage anybody from reading that. Okay, very good. And I'll, okay. And I'll, I'll leave you with my joke. You know what they say about studying aging is that it, it never gets old. 
now and it does become more relevant the longer you stick with it thank you Richard thank you very much for your time appreciate it you've been listening to almost here around the corner future technology podcast with Richard Jacobs subscribe to this podcast post a review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse such as Bitcoin artificial intelligence 3D printing blockchain virtual reality and more 